And it is Jesus who makes this a glorious day. We welcome you to this broadcast. We are so glad that you are able to join us today. Of course, it is Jesus who makes every day glorious. But humanly speaking, some days are hard to see God's glory in when we are pressed in on all sides as we are as a country after Hurricane Dorian. Nothing that I could say in my opinion or nothing that anyone else could say in their human opinion would bring the comfort and the hope that we already have given us in Scripture from God's own heart to ours. Today's sermon was first preached at Calvary Bible Church in September of 2017, right after Hurricane Irma. The biblical truths that were presented back then still pertain to today in the aftermath of Hurricane Dorian. Please note that the sermon aired today is excerpts of the original sermon. Remember, the entrance of God's word brings light. Eleven storms in Scripture and the things that God does through storms. Eleven storms, the things that God does through storms. The first fact that has to be stated, we dare not miss the following fact, is that God can control and use storms. God can control and use storms. And the second fact is we can't. I heard some nonsense people saying that they did this or that, and that's what averted Irma. That's crazy. It is only God who controls storms, God who uses storms. We can do neither of those things. And so in Psalm 104, verse 3, it's one of many verses in the book of Psalms that I think states this fact. Psalm 104 and verse 3, he, God, lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the winds. God can and does control storms, and God can and does control storms for his own sovereign, flawless, all-wise purposes. The first storm I want to share with you is creation's storm. You do realize that before Irma ever appeared on the scene, that creation has been battling a general storm since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden fell into sin. In Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25, this is made very clear. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. You do realize that all of creation is in pain because of sin, our sin. 
And the pain that creation feels is akin to the pain of a woman in labor soon to deliver a baby. And so what you could say over all the other storms that I will point to in this message is the overarching storm is sin's impact on creation. And so the point I take from the creation storm is the fall into sin. The second storm I want to consider with you, I'm calling the Egyptian plague storm. Go with me to Exodus 9. As you know, God delivered his people Israel out of Egyptian slavery using plagues. And the plague that we're going to look at in Exodus 9 is the seventh plague. And the point of this seventh plague in Egypt, the storm of the seventh plague in Egypt, was God getting a person's attention. And the person that God was getting the attention of was Pharaoh. Sometimes God's purpose in a storm is to get a person's attention. And in Exodus 9 and verse 13 through 26... Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that they may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, would you then have been cut off from the earth? But indeed, for this cause, I have allowed you to remain, here it is, in order to show you my power, in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. God sent the storm that he sent of hail to Egypt. By the way, you do realize that Egypt is a hot temperature country. They don't usually get frozen rain, but God sent them frozen rain, a hailstorm. Because God, in that storm, wanted to get one person's attention. A person who put himself above the true God of the Hebrews, Pharaoh. The third storm I want to point us to is the storm that I am calling the two houses storm. It's the storm in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus paints the picture of the wise man and the foolish man, the two houses storm. This storm was a test of life's foundation. Who or what is your foundation of life? Jesus taught about this storm that two houses underwent in Matthew 7, 24 to 27, Jesus' words, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house and it fell. And great was its fall. In this storm that I'm calling the two houses storm, the test of life foundation, it's at the end of Jesus Christ's Sermon on the Mount. And the point of this 
illustration is that it is obedience to God's word that gives you the proper foundation for your life that will help your life to stand up to the hurricanes of circumstance, the family problems, the money problems, the health problems. And so the storm that I am calling the storm of the two houses was a test of life's foundation. Who or what is your foundation? We're seeing that God has different purposes in storms, right? To see the fall into sin, to get a person's attention, to test the foundation of a person's life. What about the disciples' storm? What about the disciples' storm in Matthew chapter 8? These were seasoned fishermen, perhaps as many as half of them were seasoned fishermen. They knew the Sea of Galilee like the back of their hands. They made a living on the Sea of Galilee. They knew right well that it was a very shallow, rocky lake and that the winds would come off the hillside and sweep up the uh, Sea of Galilee into like uh, a tempest in a teapot, just like that. The squalls and the winds could capsize a fishing boat and make it impossible to swim to shore. They knew all that. And so this one day, they're on have occasion to be in their fishing boat with Jesus. And a storm came. Matthew 8, 23. And when he, that is Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. By the way, that's what disciples do. They follow Jesus. And behold, there arose a great storm in the sea, so that the boat was covered with waves, but he himself was asleep. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you timid, you men of little faith? Then he arose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men marveled, saying, What kind of a man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? The disciples' storm, the purpose of the disciples' storm was so that they would see more of Jesus, that they would see more of Jesus, that they would see his complete control over creation, complete control over the storm, could see afresh, maybe more deeply, his divinity, that he was, in fact, God, and that he is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead, not at that point. He is Lord. Could it be that this storm or other storms God has let you experience so that you would see more of Jesus? What about Noah's storm? In some ways, the storm of all storms. What about Noah's storm? We know from reading Genesis chapters 6 through 9 that the world's population had become exceedingly wicked in the sight of God. And God was even sorry, it says in the text, that he made human beings. And in Genesis 6, verses 5 to 7, is sort of the condensed encapitalization of what was going on with the global flood. Genesis 6, 5 to 7. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of, of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, to birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. 
The point of Noah's storm was the holiness of God. If God were not holy, there would not have been a global flood. But God is holy, and he can't tolerate sin. He doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't grade on the curve. He doesn't say, well, they're not as bad as those guys. Sin is sin to God. It's reprehensible to God. And God's holiness really only finds its meaning when God has wrath against sin. You don't have wrath against sin, then you can question, is God truly holy? Noah's storm was all about the holiness of God. And really, the global flood was to be inevitable because mankind was constantly, deeply sinful. What about Jonah's storm? What about Jonah's storm? You know the story. Jonah, prophet of Israel, Jonah 1, 1 to 4. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And Jonah rose and fled to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, or so he thought. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down to go into it with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So God identifies the prophet Jonah, and he says to them, him, you go, to, you go 500 miles northeast from where you are. And Jonah says, no, God, I hate the Ninevites, and I'm not going to take that assignment. And he tries to go 2,000 miles northwest. God says, you go to Nineveh. Jonah says, I don't want to. I'm not going to go 500 miles northeast. I'm going to go 2,000 miles northwest. It's a little bit of Jonah in all of us, if we're honest. And so the storm came, 112 After the storm came, the sailors cast lots trying to figure out what happened. And the lot fell on Jonah, and they basically said, what gives? And Jonah says in verse 12, and he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that it's on my account that this great storm has come. So you know what they did reluctantly. They valued his life more than he valued his own life. They threw him overboard, and God appointed a fish, a great fish, to swallow him. And he was in the belly of the fish for three days. Chapter 2 is his desperate prayer from the belly of the fish. Sometimes we only get praying when we get desperate. And in 2.10, God gave the fish indigestion and no Pepto-Bismol. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. God's appointment of the fish was so precise with GPS coordinates that when he was going 2,000 miles northeast from Nineveh, what was 500 miles to the northwest, God takes the fish to the beach of Nineveh and pukes them on the beach. Pardon my language. The purpose of this storm was the redirection of human will. Some storms come because God purposes to redirect our wills. Three, one to three. He's been vomited on the beach. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, so the orders have not changed, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, a three days walk. You'd like to hear the story ends that once he was in the fish, got out of the fish, got a second commissioning, he went there cheerfully, served the Lord, praised the Lord the rest of his life, and he lived happily ever after. 
You know the rest of the story. He still was bigoted. He still was fearful. He got angry over God's compassion and mercy toward the Ninevites. They were like ISIS, the ISIS of Jonah's day. He hated them. But the storm, the point I want to teach you is that the storm that Jonah experienced was a redirection of his will. Does your will need to be redirected? Jonah's storm, said another way, was to bring about personal repentance. Do you need personal repentance on anything? The last storm, at least in the ones I've studied for this occasion, is Elijah's rainstorm storm in James chapter 5. You may remember this storm. In James chapter 5, we get a, a tremendous summation. In James chapter 5, 16b through the end of 18. 16b, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Do you believe that? <laughs> this is a morning to believe that. The Effective prayer of a righteous man or woman can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain for, on the earth for three years and six months. Imagine. The prophet prays for no rain on the globe, and no rain comes to the globe for 3.5 years. Prayer is effective. But then in 18, and then he, Elijah, prayed again, and the sky poured rain. <laughs> And the earth produced its fruit. Church family, Elijah's rainstorm has the purpose of God, the power of prayer. Do you believe in the power of prayer? There's a real easy test as to whether you do or you don't. If you believe in the power of prayer, you pray. If you don't believe in the power of prayer, you don't bother to pray. And so... This storm of withheld rain for three and a half years and then pouring rain after that when he prayed is a call to you to pray. Elijah's rainstorm prayer was, the point of it was the power of prayer and the application of it was come and pray. Come and pray. So when it comes to storms, I hope that you see what I see, that one size does not fit all storms with respect to God's purposes. So be careful when you pronounce God's purpose on Irma. Be careful. Because one size does not fit all when it comes to God's purposes in giving storms. The purposes of these 11 storms, to show that creation has fallen into sin, to get a person's attention, to live to get your life's foundation tested, to see more of Jesus, to see God's deliverance miracle, to have military victory, to have the holiness of God showcased, to redirect human wills, to see the uniqueness of God, to recall God's people to God's purpose, and to call us to pray more. This little study really encouraged me. I hope it encouraged you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the all-wise God who never wastes a paint brushstroke on the canvases of our lives. Lord, we pray that individually we would learn the lessons you want us to learn from Irma. We pray that we as a body, the incredible body of Christ, would learn the lessons that you want us to learn from Irma. And we pray for the Commonwealth of the Bahamas that we would learn the lessons you want us to learn from Irma pray the same thing for all other countries and persons affected by this storm. We pray these things asking for your mercy for those still going through the storm. In Jesus' name, amen. 
reached down and wiped our tears away, stepped in and saved the day. But once again, I say amen, and it's still raining. But as the thunder rolls, I barely hear you whisper through the rain. I'm Falls. I'll raise my hands and praise the God who gives and takes away. And I'll praise you in this storm, and I will lift my hands. For you are who you are, no matter where I am. And every tear I've cried, you hold in your hand. You never. to conclude this Echoes of Calvary broadcast with a Puritan prayer. Sovereign Commander of the Universe, I am sadly harassed by doubts, fears, unbelief, and a felt spiritual darkness. My heart is full of evil surmisings and disquietude, and I cannot act faith at all. My heavenly pilot has disappeared and I have lost my hold on the rock of ages. I sink in deep mire beneath storms and waves in horror and distress unutterable. Help me, O Lord, to throw myself absolutely and wholly on Thee. For better, for worse, without comfort, and all but hopeless, give me peace of soul, confidence, Enlargement of mind, morning joy that comes after night heaviness, water my soul richly with divine blessings, grant that I may welcome thy humbling in private so that I might enjoy thee in public. Give me a mountain top as high as the valley is low, 
Thy grace can melt the worst sinner, and I am as vile as he. Yet thou hast made me a monument of mercy, a trophy of redeeming power. In my distress, let me not forget this. Always, God, thy never failing providence orders every event, sweetens every fear, reveals evil's presence lurking in seeming good, brings real good out of seeming evil, makes unsatisfactory what I set my heart upon, to show me what a short sighted creature I am, and to teach me to live by faith. Upon thy blessed self. Out of my sorrow and night, give me the name Naphtali, meaning satisfied with favor. Help me to love thee as thy child and to walk worthy of my heavenly pedigree. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Today, our worship service begins at 10.30 a.m. in the sanctuary located at 62 Collins Avenue. We invite you to join us. Feel free to write us at eocradio at gmail.com. That's eocradio at gmail.com or write us at P.O. Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And remember, everyone needs a Savior. Savior.